Well, good morning. It's nice and warm and sunny outside and 80 some degrees somewhere, isn't it? Really glad you're here today. Did you like that last song? How'd you like that? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get you ready for Easter and uh, we're pretty pumped about this whole month. Why don't you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, what a great song to remind us of really what you did and who you are. And we come today just to worship you, to sing to you, and to learn from your scriptures. And now as we study um, from your great Bible, may you help us, Lord, to just really make relevant application to our lives and to see the truth of your scriptures. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this was, this was back in 2001, and I got a call from my dermatologist, and she said, I've got really good news for you. Um, you're going to live. And I said, that is really good news. And she said, no, you don't understand. I just had to tell a 38-year-old man that barring a miracle, you know, things were not going to go very well. And so we got some results back from a mole that we cut off, and you need to come back in. We're going to take some more margins. And in a week, in a week, we'll be able to tell you the results of that uh, test. I said, a week? We've got to wait a whole week? And so, you know, you can imagine your thoughts that week that are going through your mind about, you know, what happens. And so obviously everything turned out really, really well. Roll the clock back a few years from, from that. Um, Denise and I finished graduate school, and I was actually a minister of education in Noblesville, Indiana. And we said to ourselves, you know what, it's probably a pretty good time to maybe start thinking about kids. And so I don't know there's ever a good time to have kids, but I don't know there's ever a bad time to have kids. And so, you know, it just happened kind of quickly. And she said, you know, I, I think I'm pregnant. I said, really? And so she made an appointment. It took a whole week, a week for us to get to the doctor. And so she went to the appointment and I met Danita at lunch. And the lobby was just full of people, just absolutely full of people. And she whispered into my ear something like, congratulations, you're going to be a dad. I had to sit down. I thought I was going to pass out right then and there. And um, this is an absolute true story. Danita did not really get morning sickness, but I threw up the next 11 days in a row. <laughs> true story. I was rattled about the whole process. Well, this morning, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series on the last week of Jesus's life. And I'm very, very excited about this because we're going to talk about what took place on the very last week of Christ's life. And so we're calling this new message series, A Week's Notice. And in this last week of Jesus' life, I don't know if you know this or not, but about a third of the content in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about a third of the content is actually this last week of Jesus' life. And so today, we're going to start with Monday. We're going to start on the very last Monday of Jesus' life. And a whole lot of things happened on that Monday. We're going to take just one. But I want to read on Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. I want to start with Palm Sunday just so that we all get the context. So right now, I'm going to have us look at a scripture on the screen about about Palm Sunday. So this was the last week of Jesus' life. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, 
bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, wouldn't you like to be able to do this in the real world? Just show up at a Porsche dealership. The Lord needs this, you know. Do you think that would work? Probably not. All right. The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a colt, on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. This is Palm Sunday. This is what happened on that Sunday, the last Sunday of Jesus' life. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Okay? Jesus entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred, and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What an incredible story. That's what happens on Sunday. Jesus is at the height of of his popularity. Jesus comes into the city. Everybody's stirred. The whole community has great messianic expectations. They were excited about a Messiah. And as this whole month goes on, I'll tell you about three specific things they were looking for in a Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfilled all three of them. And that's to come. That's foreshadowing. That's like a commercial where you got to come back the next week, okay? But here's, here's on Monday. Now, this is so strange because if you were trying to, like, start a movement and get everybody all excited and and jacked up, you certainly wouldn't throw the emergency break. Look what he does on Monday. The very next verse is Monday of the last week of Jesus' life. Here's what it says. Here's Monday. Here's our verse for today. We'll do just one or two verses out of Matthew 21. So if you want to turn to Matthew 21, I encourage that. We'll circle some things there. Jesus entered the temple courts. This is on Monday. He entered the temple courts. He had the whole city the, the, the day before. They're waving palm branches. They're all jacked up. They're all excited. He's got them all stirred up. Here is what he does on Monday. He enters the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. Talk about throwing the emergency brake. Talk about throwing cold water on a fire. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, let's camp out for just a couple minutes. First of all, I want you to circle in your mind or in your Bible the words there, temple courts. It's important to understand where Jesus was. He is inside this huge, massive temple. This is Herod's temple, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. What did he do? He drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, I've heard some really bad application to this passage of Scripture. There have been some really poor, pitiful applications made to this story. One of those is Jesus is not upset about buying and selling in the temple. This isn't what got him all upset. I had a guy in um, Oakland City, Indiana. It was my first little church uh, when I was in graduate school, and I was preaching there on weekends. And this guy named Bob was a quail hunter. And Bob and I went quail hunting on a regular basis. Bob would never come to church 
when the youth were selling baked goods for like a, a Christian conference. Bob thought this verse applied to you could never sell t-shirts at the church, you could never sell CDs at the church, you could never sell baked goods at the church. And so finally we're out quail hunting, I asked Bob why he boycotted the Sundays when we sold baked goods for the youth. Now Bob gave money. It wasn't that he was against giving money. He gave money. He just didn't show up on those Sundays. And he quoted this verse as why you couldn't buy and sell in the church. This has nothing to do with buying and selling in the church. I've also heard this poorly applied that you can never, like, charge Christians interest. Like, you could never charge a Christian interest, or Christians could never have a loan. Christians could never have a mortgage. This has absolutely nothing to do with that passage of Scripture. I have heard people talk about this and talk about that, that Jesus, you know, you shouldn't cheat. Well, that's good. You shouldn't cheat, right? But it's really not the application to this particular story. And so in, in this particular story, Jesus is not upset about the fact that they were having a sacrificial system. And Jesus was not upset about the half-shekel tax that took place. That's why there were money changers. And so let me just give an example real quickly. The reason that there were doves and they were selling doves is because of the sacrificial system. And so you came to the temple and you offered a sacrifice. And if you lived 100 miles away, you didn't want to bring your lamb with you. You didn't want to bring your doves with you. You didn't want to carry your animals 100 miles away and try to keep them alive for 100 miles. You would rather go and buy them at the temple. It's just so much easier. It's kind of like going on vacation. And let's say you're going on vacation maybe to, I don't know, the Panhandle or Fort Walton Beach. You can go to Costco and load up three or four coolers full of food, okay, and save maybe $10, Or you can go to your vacation spot and go a half a mile away where there's a Publix and just load up. Now, which would you rather do? Would you rather carry three or four coolers of food all the way up there or just go to the Publix a half mile away? I'd rather go to the Publix a half mile away. I'd rather have the car full of surfboards and boogie boards and paddle boards and, you know, the important things of life, right? And so here's what they're doing. People would take this pilgrimage during the Passover, and they would just buy the animals outside the temple. So Jesus is not upset about the sacrificial system. Everybody got that? The sacrificial system he supported. He was not against them exchanging the money into a different currency, because in the temple, you had to give the half shekel tax in the Hebrew coinage. And so if you had Roman money, you had to exchange it. If you had currency from another city, you had to exchange it. And so Jesus was not against the half shekel tax. He himself, at another place in Scripture, he gave the half shekel tax. And the half shekel tax was to help repair the temple. And so there's all these records about what they did with this tax. They repaired the gold. They repaired the the tables. It'd be like us, you know, saying we could never spend money renovating or repainting or buying new stuff for the church. So Jesus wasn't against this. Here's what honked him off. Jesus is torqued about something. I want to show you a picture of the inside of the temple. Let me show you this. So you see um, in this particular temple that you've got um, kind of a little pink area. Do you see the pink area there on the screen? 
That's kind of hard to see, isn't it? Little pink area there. Then just to the north of the pink area, there's a little, little blue area there. Then there's that tall raised building. And then there's outside, there's that great big court, courtyard all the way outside there. Now, let me explain this real quick carefully. There were concentric different areas where people could go into this courtyard. This is Herod's temple. One temple, lots and lots of synagogues. But there was one temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem. And so the high priest, once a year, would go into that one room called the Holy of Holies. Only once a year, high priest, Holy of Holies. The priests would go into the holy place on a daily basis. The little blue area right there is called the Court of Jewish Men. And the court of Jewish men could go through the court of Gentiles, through the pink area, which is the court of Jewish women, and go to the court of Jewish men. And so the the Jewish men could hang there. The Jewish women, they could never get to the holy place. They could never get to the holy, holy place. And the Jewish women could never get to the court of Jewish men. There's a point to this, okay? This is in the history lesson. There's a theological point. Are you still with me? Don't get lost here. If you get lost here, you flunk the course. You have to go home, Okay? So the Jewish women, they can't go to the court of Jewish men. They're in the pink area. That's where the court of Jewish women are. Now, those outside courts are called the court of Gentiles. And this is where people came that wanted to learn about God. You were a Gentile, and you didn't understand the law, the Torah. You didn't understand the the Hebrew ways. So you would, like, lean into the court of Gentiles, and you would listen And you would listen to the teaching from the Jewish men and the Jewish women, and you would be leaning in on what's going on. And you couldn't wait to hear about this. And also, if you were Jewish and you were paralyzed or you were crippled, you could, even though you were a Jewish man, you could not go into the court of Jewish men. If you had some physical infirmity or deformity, you were ostracized from going inside of the temple area, you had to stay outside here in the court of Gentiles. So guess where they set up the money changers? Guess where they set up the exchanging of all these doves? Guess where they set up a flea market? These Jewish people set up a flea market in the court of Gentiles. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? You have just placed this flea market in the area where the least of humanity has the greatest interest in understanding who I am. You've just put a barrier. You've just interfered with their opportunity to listen about God. You've just interfered with their opportunity to grasp what's going on. And this honks Jesus off. It's not the sacrificial system. It's not the half-shekel tax. It's probably not even the exchanging of money and a little bit of higher interest. It's probably not even a little bit of the dishonesty that was taking place. What got Jesus so fired up was you've placed a barrier between the people who are trying to lean in and listen and learn about God, and you've just established this flea market where these people now cannot understand the purposes I have for them. It'd almost be like maybe at Tropicana Field, you know, there's people on first baseline and there's people on the third baseline, there's people behind the dugout, box seats, you know, and there's people out in the outfield. I've sat in the outfield, the outfield's fine, and out in the outfield you can see the game, you can hear the game, but you can't really get in on the nuances of what's taking place. You're leaning and stretching and learning. These people are in the outer courts. 
They want to understand God. It's the reason why the court of Gentiles was established, so that the Gentile people and the infirm Jewish people could learn about God. And Jesus Christ is ticked. Let's look at that verse again. We just look at this verse one more time. Chapter 21, verse 13. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. But, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, there's two Old Testament quotes that Jesus quotes from here. I, I need you to hang tough for five more minutes, and I'm going to give you some wonderful application about your life. But theologically, can you hang with me for five more minutes? I, I need five more great minutes. Because Jesus, in this little verse, he quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes from Jeremiah. And if you can see these two quotes, it will forever change how you look at Monday, the last week of Jesus' life. All right, so my house will be called a house of prayer. That's one Old Testament quote. You're making a den of robbers. That's a second Old Testament quote. Look at Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56, here's what Jesus is quoting. Now, this is kind of amazing, that in anger, Jesus can quote Scripture. Do you quote Scripture when you're angry? I mean, I don't. Do you think of Scripture when you're angry? This is the angriest we've ever seen Jesus. And instantly, he's thinking of Isaiah, and he's thinking of Jeremiah. That's impressive. This is what the Lord says. This is out of Isaiah. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. And the eunuchs were physically disqualified from going into any other court. They couldn't go into the court of Jewish men. They were disqualified. To those who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant... To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, foreigners who come to the temple, foreigners who come to learn about me, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Jesus is quoting Isaiah, my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. Not only is Jesus ticked that they've set up a flea market, okay, but he's also disqualifying people from, uh, there's an, exclusive, an exclusivism. And he wants it to be, you know, to reach all people. Well, that's out of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah. In this, and he also quotes Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7. This is what the Lord says to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gates of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And in other words, what they're saying is, that quote is saying, don't just come to the temple and not have a good heart. Don't just come to the temple and lie and steal and cheat. Don't just think that because you're in a house of worship that you're safe spiritually. God is saying, I want far more from you than that. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, in other words, this is why Jesus quotes this. You set up a flea market, you're oppressing the foreigner. The fatherless are the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. 
in the land I give your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Man, is Jesus ticked. In a moment of sheer anger, Jesus Christ is talking about, you've made this a den of robbers. I want more. I want my house to be a house of prayer. So now let's go back and look at verse 13 again through the context of what we just had said. This is what Jesus said. Jesus has Isaiah and Jeremiah on his mind. It is written to them, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So what is Jesus so upset about? He's upset about the fact that they've set up this shop in the only place where these Gentiles and these infirmed Jews could pray. He's so upset about the word. It's one word to me. It's interference. It's one word. It's interference. Now, in football, uh, how many of us are mourning that football is over? How many wives are rejoicing that football is over? Okay. Uh, I, I, am, I, I, I love football. But in football, interference is a penalty, right? And interference is usually a game changer. I mean, when the defense interferes with the offensive pass receiver near the goal line, it's almost a sure six points. It's a guaranteed chip shot, three points for, for a field goal. It, it's, in, in football, it's a penalty. In life, in life, interference can be anywhere from a nuisance to an absolute tragedy. Now, you and I are familiar with interference, we are familiar with interference in our lives. We're familiar with interference with other people. We are familiar, familiar with interference in our health. I mean, let me just tell you about my phone. I, I got a great phone. My phone's a nice phone. My phone will send a rocket to the moon. My phone will not work in our house. Dee's got a cheap phone. It was one of the free phones from T-Mobile, and her phone works all the time, every day, every minute in our house. I don't understand that. At our house, I'm not kidding you, I have to go outside all the way to the edge of our yard and sit on this little green box to use my phone. Now, that's okay as long as it's not raining, okay? And that's okay at 10 o'clock at night. In our home, we've got wireless in our home and the computers work fairly close to the wireless router, but you get the computers away all the way to the end of our bedroom. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We're all familiar with some interference in our lives, aren't we? But just think about interference, though, as it breaks down to the nuances of your life. Education. Those of you that are educators in the room, you understand educational interference. You understand learning disabilities and how that's an interference. You understand some, some parents that are really interfering with their children's education. There, there's all kinds of uh, educational interferences that can take place. All of us should be familiar with mechanical interferences. What happens if you fail to put oil in your car? What happens? How long does that car work? What happens if the, the tire pressures are, are low? What happens if the fuel filters and the oil filters are all clogged up? There's mechanical interference. Um, there's incredible health in interferences, aren't there? You just think about how many health interferences there are. 
I mentioned a couple weeks, last Sunday, I mentioned about maximized living. And um, we went to a maximized living conference. There's about a thousand doctors that are part of maximized living. And during the afternoon break, uh, a physician and I were actually taking a walk to a coffee shop to get some tea or something to have a little break. And on the way there, I wasn't real familiar with all the terminology yet. And I said to him, I said, kind of explain this, this whole process to me about, uh, about um, maximized living. And he said, um, well, really, it, it's about the word interference. And I said, well, what do you mean interference? He said, well, imagine you're on the treadmill for like an hour. You're like, you walk on the treadmill and you get off the treadmill, and you go eat a box of Twinkies. And I thought, what's wrong with that? (laughs) He had to explain this to me. And and he said, that would be interference. And I thought, you know, I I, I get that. And, And so when you talk about even like from a physical standpoint, you know, are there things that we're doing from a nutrition standpoint, from a health standpoint, that are interference? We understand health interference. And of course, the whole purpose of maximized living is, is if you take away the interferences, God's designed your body in such a way that most of the time, in most cases, if you take out the interferences, your body's strong enough and healthy enough to heal itself and to keep you, keep you from getting diseases. We understand relational interference, don't we? You're trying to have a conversation with somebody. And all of a sudden, somebody else, a third party, like jumps in and gets involved and, and interrupts. Or what happens when husband and wife are not on the same page parenting? Do kids know that when you're not on the same page? They smell blood, don't they? And so there can be interference when a husband and wife are not on the same page parenting. And, and all of a sudden, that kid plays one parent off of the other. We understand vocational interference. It's amazing how a company or an office or a department can do really, really, really well when you get rid of the people in the office who are sabotaging each other. You take out that interference from a company, and it's amazing how that company can soar and that department can become so much more profitable. Well, for just a couple minutes this morning, I want to challenge you to think about spiritual interference. And I want you to think about Are there spiritual interferences in my life? Again, it's just like your body. If there are physical, nutritional, lack of exercise, if there are all those kind of interferences in your physical body, what happens when you take away those interferences? The body gets healthy. What happens when you take away the interferences from a company? The company makes more money. What happens when husband and wife are on the same page and and there's no interferences in the The marriage goes up, the parenting goes up, everybody's getting along a little bit better. So on your bulletin, I'm giving you some words, but I want you to think about how these actually apply to your life. See, why was Jesus so angry? He was so angry Because a group of people were actually causing spiritual interference for a group of people. Now, before we kind of even dive into this, you know, you think about what made Jesus angry. Does that get your attention? Does that wake you up just a little bit when you realize that he didn't get real angry all the time about false doctrine? He didn't get real angry when people like were misquoting the Torah, misquoting the law. What he got angry about or whenever people got involved and they were preventing other people from growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's talk about you. What spiritual interference could be in your life? Well, I want to start with the word feel. 
I just want to start with that word feel because sometimes I think that might be the greatest interference in your life. So if you want to write some things about how you feel and what are potential spiritual interferences on your feelings, this is for you to think about. I'm just going to give you some suggestions. Number one, I think a lot of people feel like they're disqualified. That they can't come to Christ. I think they feel like that the church is full of nice people. The church is full of good people. And they don't feel like they're a nice person. I think a lot of people in the church world have spiritual interferences because they feel shame. And they feel incredible guilt. And, and all those feelings are right and true until you come to Christ. But when you come to Christ, Christ qualifies you. When you come to Christ, Christ takes away your guilt. When you come to Christ, Christ takes away your shame. And so even as a believer, there may be things in your life that you feel that are spiritual interferences. And all I want to do this morning is get you to identify those and to get you to think then through the lenses of Scripture. Those are really good interferences. Or you know what? Those are spiritual interferences that I I still shouldn't be messing with. Those still shouldn't be in my life. So one of the interferences in your life and in my life are our feelings. Am I disqualified? Is there guilt? Man, God can't love me. Think about all the things that I've done. Feelings. Second one is how you think. And again, this is for you to write on your list. Are there some spiritual interferences? And I just want to throw up some suggestions. One of those is how you think about the Bible. Maybe for you, the Bible hasn't really made a lot of sense yet. Maybe for you, the Bible, your English college literature professor said the Bible was full of myths and full of errors. But maybe for you, you're just really thinking that, you know what, I'm not sure that I can really base my entire life on this because I'm not really sure that this is inspired. I'm not really sure this is authoritative. I'm not really sure this has the words of life. I'm not really sure that, you know, God actually, actually wrote this thing. And, and, and it's amazing to me that people have an opinion about the Bible who've never read it. Have you noticed that? I appreciate that. Thank you. You ever notice that? I mean, if you came to me and you said to me, have you read so-and-so by so-and-so? And if I've never read the book and you said, well, what's your opinion about it? What would I say? I don't have an opinion. I haven't read the book. But everybody has an opinion about the Bible. I'm outside at Starbucks talking to some of my guys who call me Padre and I ask them about the Bible, full of myths, full of stories. Have you ever read it? Well, no, not really. And well, why not? Well, I just, I, I don't know. And, and, and so I, I encourage you to understand how this was put together. I encourage you to understand that this has 40 different authors. Not one, not three, not five. This has 40, 40 different authors over 1,500 years. 1,500 years they, the different authors wrote this. It's written in three languages. It's written in three, from three different continents. This has six different physical places that the Bible is written and 12 different types of, of vocational people who wrote the Bible, from monarchs to fishermen. And you think about how the Bible starts in the same place, how the Bible ends in the same place. You think about how it's all put together. I've said this. I think the greatest miracle in the Bible is the Bible. And so I'm encouraging you, if this is a spiritual sticking point, to go hog wild, jump in, 
dive in and learn how this book was put together. And I guarantee you, it will cause you to be incredibly overwhelmed and impressed. I I think it'll encourage you to read this a little bit more than a newspaper from time to time. I think it's time to get your face out of Facebook and get your face in the Word of God. That's what I think. But anyway, I'm about to go to preaching, and I'm just trying to teach you about Scripture this morning. All right? I think some people think they have to clean up first. I think some people think before I can really get involved in church and serve church and love, you know, I got to clean up first. I guarantee you, I don't know anybody who's ever cleaned up their act first. I don't. I don't know anybody who's ever pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and got clean first. But I know thousands of people, thousands of people who have come to Christ and Jesus Christ inside of them begins to clean them up. Jesus Christ inside of them begins to transform them. You're not going to clean yourself up. You're a good person, maybe, but you're not able to clean yourself up. You come to Christ, and Christ has redeemed you with the precious blood, and Christ will sanctify you. And so I think a lot of people think, boy, I got, I got to do better. I got to be better. If I can just get a little bit better, then, then God will like me. If, God, if I just get a little bit better, then, you know, that church will like me, and I can serve with the children's department. You're, you're not, you come to Christ, and Christ will clean you up. I, th- I think another thing that we think about is we know we need to change. We know that there's spiritual interference in our life. We know we need to change, but we've gotten so comfortable. You know, I know I need to change, but in order for me to change, that's going to require work. And I've gotten really, I know I'm sinning. I know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I know God's called me to be bigger, better, but I've just gotten so comfortable. I think that is a huge spiritual sticking point in your life. So again, I don't know about you or you think, but I'm just making some suggestions. The third area that you might want to write about are your experiences. You just think about your experiences. Now, there, there have been some really unhealthy church experiences that people have had. And there have been some really unhealthy churches and maybe, maybe your church experience was not very good. Maybe your church experience, you needed the church when you were a kid. And your mom, maybe, you know, this happened and dad left and grandpa was drinking and, and the church just kind of kicked you out. Those are some incredibly unhealthy church experiences. But that was never the design of God's church. God's church was designed for a group of people to walk together, to work together, to synergistically to do things together that they could never do on their own. And so I don't know about your experiences, but I know what church is supposed to look like. I know what a healthy church is supposed to be like. And this is a really healthy church of elders and staff and people, and we just keep infusing more and more health. And so do not let your past unhealthy church experiences keep you from growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And lastly, maybe it's just lifestyle. Maybe just what's keeping you from growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ is just your lifestyle, just plain old-fashioned sin. You know, the doctor talked to me about, you know, being on the treadmill for an hour and then eating a box of Twinkies. I I get that, don't you? I do like Twinkies, but I get that story, don't you? We we all get that. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you're reading your Bible for an hour, and then during the week you're committing adultery. Would that be spiritual interference? You, You bet it would. And so in your life and in my life, it could be just plain old-fashioned greed, plain old-fashioned sin, just some things in your life that you're doing that you know, you know are against the will of God. So what do you do? 
I've got two more words for you. Move and remove. And I can't do this for you. But in your life, what needs to be removed? Are there certain people in your life that are not helping you get where you want to be spiritually? If you have some very unhealthy friends, it's time to remove yourself from those unhealthy friends. And it's time to move towards some health. Maybe a small group, a women's group, a men's group. But it's time for you to move. Where do you need to remove? Or maybe I should say, first of all, who? Who needs to be removed in your life? And then where do you need to move toward more godly people in your life? Are there some unhealthy places that you continue to visit? It's not just unhealthy people, but are there some unhealthy places that you continue to be immersed with? And you need to remove those unhealthy places in your life. And and you need to move then toward what Jesus is trying to talk about in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is talking about this massive temple. I want the Jewish men. I want the Jewish women. I want all these Gentiles. I want all these infirm Jews. I want them all to know that this is my house. This is my house of prayer. This is my house of community. This is my house of connection. This is where I want my people to come and to be. And so in your life... God has created for you the opportunity to pray and to pray and to pray. He's created the time and the place. He's created the people. He's created the leadership. He's created the structure. He's created the church for you to be able to grow in your My house, it's not going to be a den of robbers, a place where everybody's just buying and selling and missing the whole point. It'd be like us on a Sunday morning just all of a sudden having a flea market in here and not having a worship service. That would torque Jesus Christ off. This is a house. A house of worship, a house of prayer, a house of love, a house of grace, a house of mercy, a house of forgiveness. Oh my goodness. God has poured out his spirit on you and on me. And so we remove all those things that are causing spiritual interference in our life. They're not helping you. You know they're not helping you. You know they're deep sixing you. You know they're not getting you where you want to be. And so where do you move? You move toward God. You move toward prayer. You move toward the scriptures. You move toward community. You move toward the church. You become the man or the woman of God that God has called you to be. This is his house. We are his people. We are chosen and we were bought with amazing blood. So this morning, perhaps for you, let's stand up. Perhaps for you. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the prayer partners to come down front right now. And I tell you, that's step one. Step one is spiritual interference is I've never given my life to Jesus I've never asked Jesus to come into my heart. I've never asked Jesus to forgive me of all my sins. Step one, today, if you feel his presence, if you hear his voice inside of you, today, step one, major spiritual interference is I need to get my sins forgiven. And then for those of us that are Christians, he says, what do we do when there's sin in our lives? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. So here's what we do. 
We confess our sins. We confess our struggles. We confess our foibles. We confess our faults. And maybe today, maybe you need to come down and see Jason or come down and see the McMullins or the Babcocks or the Algers or the Booties. Maybe today you need to come down to one of our prayer partners and ask them, you know what? You may not even want to tell them what your spiritual sticking points are, but I got some. And would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? So we're going to give you an opportunity this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that today you will come down front and you will pray with one of our prayer partners and you will accept Jesus in your life and you will remove the spiritual sin in your life. But then maybe, just maybe, there's some of you in the room that need help with, again, some spiritual interference. You're a Christian. You've been a Christian for 20 years, but you're still struggling with this. And you would like somebody today to pray with you or to pray for you or to pray over you. Maybe there's another prayer need that you have. Health, vocation, relationships, whatever it is, our prayer partners are willing to pray with you. You know why? Because this is a house of prayer. This is a house of prayer. We pray and we pray and we pray some more and we get tired of praying. We pray some more. We don't have answers. We pray some more. We keep praying. We keep praying. We keep praying. We never give up. We keep praying. Did I make a point about prayer? We keep praying. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, if there are those in this room that need to become Christians, we pray for them, that you will overwhelm their hearts and their minds and their wills and their emotions with your spirit. Lord, if there are those in the room, all of us probably need to confess our sins. Maybe we need to be prayed for, prayed over. Again, we ask for you to touch us and lead us and let us grow and grow in our relationship with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, remove all the spiritual interference that is in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.